Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. And welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's 154th episode is what I'm calling a bonus or replay episode, where we ordinarily feature newer or even debut authors. That is not the case today. Today, I have two reasons for providing you a bonus or replay episode. First, I wanted to reach back into our archives and visit one of my favorite episodes in the past year or so. The reason I chose today's guest is because... Besides being a thoroughly charming and engaging guest, David Ellis is also a remarkable talent with a stack of books to his credit. He also shares a byline with legendary writer James Patterson. David Ellis is our guest today, and I trust you'll enjoy it. The other reason I'm choosing to air a replay is because I recently underwent major surgery, and because of it, my doctor has told me to slow down and take time to repair. Yeah, he doesn't know me that very well, does he? With that said, and with my strength and energy not exactly what it was two weeks ago, I'm bringing back some of my favorite moments. Now, how long will this last? I'm not sure. But if you know me, you know I love what I do, so don't expect it to take too very long. Besides, I have some amazing authors planning to visit the show in the coming weeks, many of whom you're well aware, and others who've never appeared on the show before. So without any further delay, kick back and enjoy an author who may not be a household name yet, but I don't think it's going to take very long, as I personally feel he's one of the very best. Please welcome my new friend, David Ellis, author of Look Closer to the Thriller Zone. This show isn't about me, David. This is a show about (laughs) you. Bam! And this, this hellacious page-turning beast called Look Closer. I'm going to be real honest with you. I, I was going to talk about this later. I'm going to say this up front. I didn't know you. My my apologies for not knowing oh, you. Sure, of course. But I saw this book. I'm a big fan of the cover. I look at this. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see what he's got going. Uh, people know this about me. Sometimes I'll check the back first. And while I go, well, James Patterson, he know what the hell he's talking about. Scott Turow. Hello. I started reading him when I was in high school. Yeah, he's great. And, and Hank uh, Philippi Ryan. Uh, beautiful. Then I go into the inside. I'm like, okay, what I like about this is you give us so little. I right. really like that. You don't tell me the whole story. But David, when I started reading this, all right, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't say this often. I do hyperbolize a few things because it's part of showbiz. And I yeah, do sure. I do repeat myself sometimes, but I don't say this phrase very often. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. I had the hardest friggin' time putting this book down. Well, good. I mean, <laughs> I read it in two days, which, you know, uh, that's no mean feat for nearly 500 pages. Uh, anyway. Yeah, well, thank you. It's, you know, you try to, you try to do that. You try to write it in a way that people don't want to turn away from it. You try to keep the pace up so that it's hard to stop. If it starts getting to a sleepy pace, that's when you start feeling, okay, this is a good time to stop. I didn't want there to be a good time to stop. That's kind of my goal when I'm writing this. Uh, so the, the sticky note on your, uh, computer says don't allow anybody to stop. All right. 
I'm going to do this one thing and then we're going to, we're going to go talk about you. Then we're going to come back. But I like the fact that each chapter is in is titled by the name of the character speaking. And at first I know this isn't a brand new technique, but the way you did it really friggin' got my attention Be and you have to do it that way because if you don't, you get a little confused. Then that was a tough decision to make. And I didn't start with that decision. You know, when I do stuff with Patterson, his basic, plan usually and it was nice because it was also mine was to uh to have the protagonist be in the first person and if you need to, some other points of view fine but do relegate them to third person and i i realized very quickly that vicky was a very strong character who needed her own voice uh, her own first person voice and then i ended up coming to the same conclusion about christian and i i almost did it for the fourth point of view which was the, the police detective she worked better in the third person for this book but the others um they became so big to me as i was writing i said no i have to let them talk and they all sound a little different yeah and because you don't want them sounding all the same and they shouldn't sound all the same because they're very yeah. different people so yeah it ended up working out pretty well i, I didn't plan it that way to start all right. Well, we're going to save some of the juice. I'm Meg Gardner, by the way, co-writer of that on the show. Not to name drop, but it's kind of what I do. Meg, Meg Gardner is awesome. Don't get me started. She's a hero of mine. All right. Now, I want to back up a little bit because I did say I want to talk about you. And you're you're so approachable. I love this. I love the fact that I'm talking to a judge who is so approachable. And I'm not in trouble. So that's a bonus. And you're not in trouble. Yeah. 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 So just a few years ago, and I'm going to I'm gonna look like an idiot. I'm just going to tell you up front, so I'm okay there. Yeah. Uh, you were sworn in as the youngest serving justice of the Illinois Appellate Court for the First District. Now, A, I'm guessing you're still fighting that fight, right? I still am an appellate judge, yes. I'm in my eighth year. Okay. I'm still the youngest. That is impressive. So excuse me, what is part of the silly part of the question? And that is, what exactly is the significance of being the youngest justice? Is it just because generally everybody's old farts? I mean, I mean, we we have some, you know, one of the judges in my division is 85. Uh, and the median age is probably 70. Um, a lot of people, David, are on the trial court first. So I'm on the appellate court, the Court of Appeals. Any case that comes out of the first district, which is Cook County, Illinois, which is dominated by Chicago. So all the crime out of Chicago and all the civil, any civil or criminal appeal goes to me. A lot of people are in the trial court first and they spend years doing that. They might spend 20 years as trial court judges or 15 and then run for the appellate court. I ran straight for the appellate court because I'm, I, I thought that was my skill set. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer and uh, it's, a, it's a written job. It's a writing job. You don't see the parties very often. The lawyers might argue before you for 15 minutes, but the trials, that's all happening in the, in the court below me. So yeah, I suppose I'm younger because I went straight to the appellate court. I ran for, for that, but it, 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 I thought it was a good fit. And I felt like I had a lot to say. I still do, which is why I'm still doing it. And um, you know, it's, it's worked out great. I guess it does beg the question, and we're going to get to this in the next question. But um, if you're doing, if you're going to be doing as well as a author, how long will you be sitting in the robe on the big bench uh, until you just go? You know, I really just kind of dig the hours and the wardrobe of writing better. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, since the pandemic, a lot of the work I do is from home, anyways. Uh, everybody on our court has figured out if they didn't already know that, that, that this job is almost all electronic now. 
Oh, um, if we want to, like I said, if we if the if the lawyers are going to argue their appeal to us, which not every case gets argued, but if it does, we can do that by Zoom, and we have just like you and I. I would have a background behind me instead of this being my house. Uh-huh. You'd see a courtroom, and I'd be wearing a robe and a shirt and tie, um, probably shorts and sandals beneath, right? <laughs> but um, like everybody else, but otherwise, it's all electronic these days. The, the record gets sent to us electronically, meaning I can read the record of the trial on my computer at home. But a lot of appellate judges are realizing that they can do stuff from home. In fact, David, a lot of the trial judges right now in, in Cook County are still doing most of their work from home. In, in a lot of ways, that's really good because if what we're doing is trying to make things easier for people who come before us, mm-hmm. well, now you can have a lawyer who might have two cases to in, in a morning. One is in Cook County, one's in another county. But if they do it by Zoom, they can do both of them. Um, yeah. You have litigants who are coming to themselves to court, not the lawyers, but the people. And they now don't necessarily have to show up at the Daily Center and go through the metal detectors and wait and wait. They can just be on a Zoom at home so or at their workplace. Well, the reduction of barrier of entry, you know, yes. removing those problems. Yeah, I can I can see that both economically and emotionally, et cetera. All of that. Um, well, now let's talk about this. By the way, that's all fascinating. And uh, I, I'm in, uh, I'm a huge admirer of what you do. So uh, kudos to you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Carry on. <laughs> let's talk about the fact that you're an Edgar Award winning author of 10 novels, six of which are standalone uh, and four of which are Jason Coleridge series. Now, a couple things. That's no easy feat. So I'm very impressed. Slightly jealous. There, I said it. Um, <laughs> You've had a pretty interesting career yourself, my friend. So. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got to hang out with big dogs like you, which is really, very, very, very cool. Um, as a sidetrack, I do want to ask, only because, again, I am admitting my ignorance that I don't know much about you, but I can say that after having read Look Closer, although my TBR stack is about to right here, I yeah. do want to investigate more of you because you have such a great style. Thank you. That being said, can you tell me if I were going to read one of the Jason series, Jason uh, Coleridge, what, which one would you be? Cause I know I got, I can impress you by pulling them all up here if I wanted to, here we go. So we got the wrong man, breach of trust, the hidden man and the last alibi. Sure. So they, they, they can be read in any order, but okay. um, the first one is the hidden man. That's probably where I would start for a lot of reasons. Um, that was when I discovered Jason and I realized that for the first time I could write a series because my, my publisher, I've always had the same publisher of my solo books. It's Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. Um, they always want you to write a series, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's a brand, you know, and if you like one, you'll go back and read the others, that kind of thing. And I never wanted to because I always would crash and burn my characters by the end of the book. <laughs> and I thought there's nothing left of him to, to write a sequel. And that's how I like to do it. Um, but with, with Jason, he was, he had already crashed and burned. And so he was a really interesting character because he was kind of coming up from having from tragedy. And so I, I, I found that that gave him a life that I hadn't expected. And I told my publisher and they were very happy to hear it. Hey, I'm ready to do a series. I'll, I'll write about Jason. The hidden man's probably, um, a good place to start anyways. It was nominated for the LA Times Book Prize. So it, it did, it got a lot of attention and that was great for the book. The title is funny because it's a great title, but it's a title that I stole from 
an Italian book of mine. So my first book was called Line of Vision way back in like 99, 2000. And in Italy, they named it Lumo Nascosto, which was called The Hidden Man. And I always thought, what a cool title, you know? So I borrowed it uh, oh. many years later. <laughs> borrowed it from and, yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that was great. And the funny thing is, is no sooner do I tell them that I'm ready to write a series than the following happens. So at this point, I'm in Springfield. So I spent a few years. I left Chicago. I lived in Springfield and I was the chief attorney for the Speaker of the House in Illinois. Um, so I was the top lawyer for the Illinois House of Representatives. And that's when a guy named Rod Blagojevich is the governor. And so, as you know, he was a pretty uh, interesting character, right? So I wrote the I wrote the Hidden Man, and it was time to write my next book. But I was slowing down because Blagojevich was kind of at war with the legislature, and so we we're I was I was working twenty hours a day trying to keep up with everything Blagojevich was throwing at us. And my publisher said, uh, "You know, why aren't you getting your work done? You know, where is the book?" And I said, "Well, we've got this crazy governor." His name is Rod Blagojevich. And of course, at that time, nobody knew who he was before he got arrested. And they said, well, do you want to write a book about him? And I said, well, God, I just started this series. And I'm like, well, can you take Jason and somehow insert him into state government and base a book about somebody like this governor? And so I said, OK, fine. I started writing it, David. I was like three quarters done with a book that was probably kind of a character study of a guy who maybe started with good intentions as governor and the people around him maybe turned him kind of bad. And it was a slightly different book than I was used to. And then comes December 9th, 2008. And that's the day that we all learned at the same time that the governor of Illinois had been arrested by the FBI. And it was across every news channel. And as soon as that happened, you know, I was sitting at home that morning uh, and my sister-in-law from Dubuque, Iowa called and, and my wife answers and says, uh, she says, Dave, um, Angela is her name, my sister-in-law. Angela says, turn on the TV. And I said, well, I'm in Springfield, Illinois. She's in Dubuque, Iowa. What channel? And she she said, any channel. Oh, boy. So I turned on, I think CNN was on or something. And all yeah. of a sudden, the scrollers, governor of Illinois arrested, you know, criminal crime spree, selling the Obama Senate seat. And at that moment, I knew that my book, which was loosely based on Blagojevich, had become not nearly as strange as reality. So reality had easily trumped my fiction. I threw the whole book in the garbage and I rewrote what became Breach of Trust, the second Jason book, based much more on what was really going on. Not not on the nose, but the same idea. Those wow, were- what a yeah. fantastic story. Oh, it was it was unbelievable. And then, then I did the impeachment. I was the, you know, the prosecutor in the impeachment trial because yeah. I was the lawyer for the house. So yeah. Yeah, it, those were some strange times. And the, the book writing took a backseat for a short time there. Well, and that begs this question. How long had you been secretly, well, I'm going to use air quotes, secretly writing before you went at it full time? You, you must have been, with this kind of a talent, you must have been, you know, scrolling away some uh, personal shorts or journals I, or something. Yeah. You know, I was a writer. I always tell people I was a writer before I was a lawyer, but then I stopped writing. I stopped writing in probably middle school, maybe freshman year of high school. You know, in high school, there was no curriculum for creative writing. And before that, I would write plays. I entered some contests in like grade school, and I supposedly won those contests. Although when I look back, I think everyone who entered won. Um, At the time, I thought I was the big winner, but there were a lot of other big winners standing around with me too. So how was that possible? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, It never really occurred to me, but but, you know, you get older and I I tell people this because if their kids want to write, I say to parents and grandparents, you may have to 
force them to do it. You may have to nudge them because school may not make them do it anymore. The curriculum is all changed. And so, you know, in high school, I was an athlete. I was trying to get good grades with whatever they were putting in front of me to do, which was not creative writing. And I was chasing girls. And so, you know, those three things were all I cared about. And, and I get to college, same thing. No one's asking me to write creatively and then law school. And so then, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there as a young attorney as probably 1995, 94. And it, I have one of those moments where I'm like, we've all had, you've had these, I'm sure you've got a cocktail in your hand. You're watching the sunset, yeah. your toes are in the sand. It's a, it's a vacation. You're thinking about your life. Yeah. And I was like 30 then, not even 30. And I thought, you know, I always wanted to write a book. Why did I stop? Why, why, I had no good answer for that. I'm like, you want to do this. So I made a decision. I made a deal with myself. Not that I would give it a shot or I'd write a few chapters, but I was going to write a book. I was going to teach myself how to do it. And it might take me years, but I was going to see it all the way through. And it was secret, David. I didn't tell hardly anybody that I was doing this because the chances of failure were so high. But I said, you're not just going to think about it. You're going to do it. You're going to write it all the way, beginning, middle, end, and then you're going to try to get it published. And it took me three years to write, and I wasn't very good at first. Uh, that's Line of Vision, the one that the one, the one that ended up winning the Edgar. And back then, this was before the internet, right? I mean, I'm sending out cold call letters to agents, and I was get, I got turned down by 75, 100 agents. Yeah. Um, I, I eventually, it took me a year and a half. I always say it took me 18 months to find an agent. It took me about 18 days then to find a publisher because we sent it to Penguin. They said, we love it. We want to do it. It won the Edgar Award and it took off from there. But, but I got rejected so many times. It was ridiculous. Like I had to rewrite my cover letter. I spent as much time rewriting that one page letter because, you know, David, it, <laughs> you could have the best book since War and Peace or To Kill a Mockingbird, which right. is but if your cover letter is no good, it's one of 200 they're getting that week. They're just yeah. going to toss it in the pile and not even see it. Yeah. Now, at least with email, I could have, in, in the modern era, I would have emailed my book and they might have read a first couple chapters. I might have gotten in a little quicker. But when it's just based on a cover letter, that better be a darn good cover letter. Yeah. Crazy. But dude, to, to shoot out of the gate winning the Edgar with your first book uh, the the fact that it took that long, notwithstanding, is really friggin' impressive. It was it was yeah. I mean, I'm I'm proudest that I saw it through and got to that point. And, and I, it was a good book, and I lived with it for so long. It reminds me of Look Closer because I had stopped writing my own books for a while when I wrote Look Closer, and so at the time I was writing it, there wasn't anyone immediately demanding, "Hey, when's that book coming?" Because I had kind of walked away from my publisher for a bit in a friendly way, but I had sort of walked away. And uh, that was the same with Line of Vision. Nobody knew I was writing it, right? Nobody knew who I was. And so it gave me time that I don't always have now to let it marinate, to change my mind about things. I wrote that entire book in the third person then changed it all to the first person. You know, I made decisions like that, which to take months to have to change. But um, but I had that luxury then because I had nobody breathing down my neck to write the next one. Wow. Well, folks, this would be a good place to take a short break. So when we come back and continue our conversation about Look Closer and David Ellis, we're going to be talking about, uh, for those of you who don't know who David Ellis is, he co-wrote with the guy that you probably have heard about. So. Maybe. 
Yeah, stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back with David Ellis. I'm David Temple. We're on the Thriller Zone. We're talking about the book, Look Closer. But the thing that we were talking about before we went to break is just about how amazing that you came out of the gate winning the Edgar with Line of Vision. But one of the caveats here that I think we need to talk about is the fact, now there are people in both camps. Oh, I love James Patterson, who we're going to be talking about. Some don't like his style. I personally got turned on to him early on, and he became one of those guys that ignited something in my brain. Though His particular style, some reason, hit me just right, and I said, I can do this. And I started doing it, and it was based upon James Patterson. Here's my question. So you've co-written eight with him, which is just silly impressive. What has that, tell my listeners what that experience has been like. Yeah, he is a genius and he is the, I, I have no hesitation in saying the man's a genius. And and he always says, you know, we're not here to win awards. We're, we're writing just fun little books. I mean, we're not curing cancer. We're not winning, you know, literary prizes. We're here to tell fun stories. It's all about the story to him. And when he talks about chapters of a book, he talks about them in terms of scenes. That's what he always says. I write scenes. I don't write chapters. I write scenes. Right. And I always think, David, you know, if you think of your favorite movies, and I don't care if they won Academy Awards, I just mean your favorite movies. There are probably movies where you could jump in at any point in time and you wouldn't care where you start, where you jumped in. You love every scene. Like there's no downtime in that movie that you love true um i can i could probably if it took if i took five seconds i could probably rattle off five movies at least that would fall into that category probably 10 where i like everything about them every scene is cool there's no you know slow time and that's what he wants he wants every scene to have an exclamation point next to it it could be scary it could be thrilling it could be heartbreaking it could be hilarious but he wants some big emotion and so, yeah, you know, when people think of his style, the main thing they think of is the short chapters, right? Yeah. 1,200 words or less. And yeah. if it's a, if it's a 1,200, that's long. So you're really shooting for more like 1,000. And, you know, what he's doing there is he's forcing himself or whoever's co-writing with him to condense it. You know, okay, let's maybe not spend three paragraphs talking about the color of the couch. Maybe we can describe the couch in a couple of words and move on and let the reader fill in the rest with their imagination, which is a great tool that you have as a writer is the reader's imagination. Sure. But, But let's get to it and let's make it tough or hard and let's do it fast and keep that pace up. So you think, oh, what's one more chapter? Okay. And the next thing you know, you're burning through those books. You know, I just read his autobiography, which I highly recommend. And again, it's just a collection of stories of his life, right? He doesn't sit there and say these long-winded things. He's like, these are things that happened in my life that I'm going to, and, and they, they tell a, a complete story of the man, but he does it through stories because that's his thing. He's a storyteller and they're all short chapters. And I couldn't stop. Re- I just kept, okay, one more, one more. Next thing you know, I'm done with the damn book. Yeah. And it was hilarious. And uh, I, not, I mean, it was hilarious how quickly I did it, but that's his goal. And that's my goal too, is to always have you wanting a little bit more and knowing that the investment is just one more short chapter makes you more likely to take him up on that and to read it fast. It's a kind of genius that people are copying now. And and I make no bones about the fact that I'm heavily influenced by that. Um, I wrote, you know, look closer is like 460 pages and people hear that and they say, oh my God, that's going to take forever to read. Well, it actually doesn't because the chapters are short and tight. And I don't hold myself to the 1200 words, but I come pretty close to it. I'll tell you. And if I'm at 
2,000 or 2,200 words, I'm always thinking, do I need all this? Can I break this into two chapters? You know, because you're always thinking about the reader. Are you keeping the pace up for the reader? Are they are they yeah. thinking, oh, what's going to happen next? Because that's what you, if you're not doing that, you're doing something wrong, I think. I mean, at least, at least for these kinds of books. I mean, there's other kinds of books out there. Yeah. But Patterson's very, he's very, he's extraordinarily humble guy, which is crazy, right? I mean, there's no reason for the man to be humble, but he is. And he's very um, chill. He's extremely laid back. He's not laid back about the quality of the book. No. Like if, if something isn't working, if I send him some pages and it's not working, he'll tell me. Yeah. I want him to. And he'll tell me why it's not working. And those little nuggets have been very educational. I feel like I'm in class with him, you know? I, I know he taught one of those master classes, like on Facebook or whatever. Like, Dude, I feel like I take that class every time I talk to the guy. I took his master class, and I bet I learned more in one master class uh, online. I want to jump in here a couple of things. Uh, first of all, to praise him, because, I mean, again, he's it's not literary fiction, but I don't I personally don't read literary fiction. I don't read for those languorous, elongated stories, la, 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 la. I read because uh, between just volume of books to read for the show and et cetera, I just want to get through it. I want want a thrill ride, man. Take me on that ride and get me going. So this is what this book does. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's it's brilliant. I think the fact that he learned that... um, I'm going to call it code, method, methodology, mm-hmm. recipe. I think it's brilliant because he he was doing this before. Uh, I mean, he's been at it for so long and he's prolific. But before the real onslaught, the wave of so much competition to where now are the competition for our minds and our eyes between streaming television, et cetera. We just we want more, more, more. So. Yes. I applaud him for that. And lastly, that's what I dug about your book. And one thing, you you did this really clever thing. You might be having Jane talking or Jane's third person or whatever. Yeah. And and it'll feel like just about the time it feels like it's getting a little long, you'll skip to the next chapter. Still, Jane, you just broke the scene. Yeah. You bro- And I love that. I'm like, because it does. Oh, well, I can go one more. Yeah, you know, you there's no reason you can't do that, and that makes it. If it makes a difference for the reader's enjoyment, then it's that's a reason right there to do it. And yes, I'll, I'll read other people's stuff sometimes, and they'll have a scene where, and let's just pick something like a stereotype: two people meeting in a dark alley with smoke coming out of the steam. You know. And, yeah. And and you know. I could have that scene begin like it really actually would begin, which is one person walks in and waits and the other person walks in, and then they talk and then they both leave. But why do I want to see all that? I don't need to see the entrance. I don't need to see the exit. And sometimes people will write this and I'll say, look, cut out the first 200 words in the last 300. And just, sh- we know if they got there, they probably walked there. We know they're meeting. I mean, if there's something, if there's some reason to have one walk in and not know who the other person's going to be fine, that's some nice drama. But if it's just two people meeting to talk, we, we don't need the intro and the exit. Yeah. You know, we don't see that in TV shows, right? They don't show all that in TV shows. Yeah. And so, um, Mike Myers is good at making fun of that when he does Austin Powers and all these other, he may, likes to make fun of those techniques. And I, I think of that with writing too. Um, so I'll tell people just, I, I don't need to see them leave. I know they left. I know the next day the sun's come up and it's a new day. And at some point they left that alley. That's fine. You know, <laughs> and you've got to remember those things like just hit on the stuff where, okay, this would be the big moment. This is the big thing she's going to reveal. As soon as she reveals that goodbye. Yeah. Go to the next scene, even if it's in the same room with the same people, because then it 
number one, it keeps the pace up. Number two, it, it makes you understand this was a big thing you just heard. Yeah. Right? From a plot standpoint. Okay. If you're ending the scene on that, that must be really important. And that impresses in the reader. Now I might be misleading you, right? This might be part of my misdirection in my yes. little game, but that's still a reason to do it. If you yeah. have a reason to do it, do it. By the way, in case you're wondering about, uh, here's a great example of white space for those looking at home, uh, watching the show is you might have a couple of pages like that. So when you make the comment about 460 pages, trust me, there's plenty of white space in there. So you're, you're moving along quickly. But your characters were so well-developed and so specifically different. And I, I am not, oh, my God. She said, what are you going to say to David? I'm like, well, there's so many things I want to ask, but uh, there's so many questions that point directly at the spoiler. So I'm like, yeah, this is hard. one of those cases I have to step back and go, okay, David, do me a favor. Tell me what the book is. I mean, I love this line, which is on your website, and it's on the book. Uh, the best lies are the ones closest to the truth, which I think is a brilliant axiom of life itself. But give me, give me a thumbnail of the book that so that I won't ruin it for the people who are going to pick this up and read it. I, I know, you know what, David, it is the single hardest thing for me when it comes to this book is describing it to people. And, and I look at a lot of the reviews on, you know, Goodreads or Amazon, and a lot of them say. Just go in blind. I don't want to tell you anything because anything I tell you is going to only be partly true. I mean, it follows the story of two characters named Simon and Vicky who are married um, and there are going to be. Uh, OK, so Simon is a law professor. Vicky is a domestic abuse shelter counselor. And um, Vicky's had a very tough life. She grew up uh, as a runaway. So and she had to do things to that runaways have to do. Uh, she sold her body for sex. She was addicted to drugs for a while. Simon is a much more sort of uh, traditional, he's a law professor. He's got a bunch of money he's about to inherit, $10 million. Well, he's actually already inherited it, but there's a proviso in the money in the trust that says his wife can't touch it until he's been married for 10 years. And guess what? As the book opens, we're about to come on the 10th year anniversary of Simon and Vicky. Vicky has her eyes on the money. She has an affair. Simon has an affair. I'd like to call it a love triangle. It's probably more like a love rectangle. <laughs> and really, the book really works back over. Uh, there's a murder very early on in the book. It's not a spoiler to say that one of these characters is, is dead on page one. Yeah. And uh, we then work back and forward at the same time to see what happened. And it really revolves around these four people, their motivations, their histories, their backgrounds, their their motivations will change over the book. Uh, what you think you understand about these characters and their relationships will constantly change. Yeah. Um, I always say, I, I, and I, I, another thing I saw in the reviews was there were so many holy, you know, what moments in the yeah. book. That's what I wanted. I wanted four or five. You got to be kidding me moments Yeah. Uh, where it just turns everything, you know, 90 degrees and everything you thought you were seeing now looks a lot different with this new piece of information. Um, so really it's a, it's a psychological thriller. It moves also, it, you know, the murder is on Halloween. We go back and see the events leading up to Halloween. We also follow a police detective after Halloween, trying to piece together the clues. And I yeah. try to work all that in, in a way that's, if it sounds complicated, I don't think it's complicated to read. There's a lot going on, but you know, maybe that's why I had so many different chapters, which makes the book appear to be longer because it's just the sheer number of chapters. Um, but I try to make it all fit in a way that you are following it the whole time and just saying, you know, what could possibly happen next? And then something else possibly happens next. Well, dude, I, I have to say it. 
I I I just said, dude, and I'm your honor, your majesty, your holiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Give me the ring. I'll kiss the ring. Um, there you go. No, but seriously, I think I'm going to have to add this to my summer's top ten summer must reads. Well, thank you. That's a nice honor. It's uh, yeah, it's it's been received well. I just need to get the word out, folks. It is stunning. But see, David, you're happy, right? That's the bottom line. I'm very happy. I'm yeah. I'm I'm very I'm very happy with everything that I'm doing right now. It's it's more I, I I've I've I'm writing the books I want to write. This is exactly the kind of book. It also happens to be kind of the hot thing in, in thriller fiction, but it's it, that's not why I did it. This is this is what I wanted to write. I mean, I walked away for a while, and when I came back, I said I'm going to write what I want to read, and this is what I would want to read. This is the kind of stuff I love. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of walking on air right now, and I'm just. I'm waiting for the bubble to burst. I hope it doesn't. I'm going to keep doing this as long as I can. Yeah, let's keep that power of intention toward positivity cuz yeah. uh, again, your honor, if this were uh, this is an example of somebody who knows what they're doing. I don't want to be that guy that just rambles on and on, so I'm going to stop, but it is Oh, I appreciate it. I'm going to refer to something you just said. You said, "Hey, books like this are hot right now. Is it because of this line that I'm going to use? I read somewhere part Gone Girl Jillian Flynn meets a stranger on a train, uh, Hitchcock. Is that what you mean by that? Uh, what do they call it? A um, unreliable narrator, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I've never been real big on putting myself into a niche. I mean, I used to write what you would probably call legal thrillers and my early work usually would revolve ultimately around a a, a decisive courtroom scene, like someone's charged with murder and something big will happen at the trial, which I could do. And I, I like it. Um, I've been getting away from that more in favor of just the psychological suspense. And uh, yeah, the, I, I appreciate those comparisons. I think they probably are pretty good comparisons. I did not come up with that, but I've heard it many times. Um, in fact, somebody just, somebody just did a review in, in a, in a, in criminal element uh, which is a magazine, an online magazine about this stuff. And uh, they, they compared it to the Gone Girl and they said, but it's more life affirming than Gone Girl, which I thought was funny because I'm not sure I've thought of this book as life affirming. <laughs> um, but but it's interesting that everybody's got their own takes, right? Huh. Yeah, no, I, I the psychological thrillers are really big right now. And the thrillers that don't necessarily involve like a nuclear bomb's going to go off in Manhattan if you don't catch the killer in the next 30 minutes, the ticking bomb sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that's not my style. That's never going to be my style. And, I, you know, those are great books and I've read many of them. Um, I'm talking about, I, th- I think if I were to gen- generically describe this sort of thing that seems like it's hot, it's probably stuff that has less violence in it. Um, it's more just about the relationships and the psychology and, you know, what's going to happen next. And there's a little bit of gore and there's certainly crime, but it's not exploding helicopters. It's not even a lot of blood. Um, this book doesn't have very much blood at all. No. Um, it, but it's, it, you know, if I did it right, it's chilling, it's eerie, it's weird and creepy at times. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. That's yeah. what Gone Girl was to me. Gone Girl was surprising and creepy. Yeah. And really kind of ripped it like the inside emotions that people feel and don't, you know, they, she kind of said the quiet parts out loud in that book, I thought. Yeah. And I, I want to do that too. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's a very well put. And I love the fact, you know, the, the, because of the success of that book and the fact that it was so engaging, it did uh, perpetuate more of that unreliable narrator and, yeah. and, but, yeah. but it works. All right. Um, 
And again, back to that line, the best lies are the ones closest to the truth, which is such yeah. a great reflection, not only of the collective conscious, but then I thought about you as a judge and I thought, yeah, you're living, uh, you're living alongside that line every single day, aren't you? Every single day in, in every way. I mean, when lawyers try to present information to me on appeal, um, they are not hopefully lying because they're not supposed to lie, but they're definitely spinning and they can leave things out and they can put a gloss on things, which is in some sense of the word deceptive. Yeah. I, I don't mean unethically deceptive because if it's your lawyer, it's your case, you want your lawyer to tell the story that most favors you. Sure. But it's, it's definitely, um, there's definitely something other than full truth and disclosure going on there, right? Yeah. Maybe deception is a little hard. Um, and then, of course, you know, within the, the criminal justice system itself, there's a ton of deception going on. You know, the police will deceive suspects sometimes to get them to confess. And of course, sometimes people won't be truthful with the police. But yeah, I, I deception is fascinating to me. And, you know, the way some of the deception takes place in this book was really enjoyable for me to write because you try to look at it. You, you know, some, some of it is just stuff you take for granted you know, that ends up not being true, but you never even thought it might not be true. Um, and all of a sudden you're saying, well, who said that was true? I never said that was true, you know, or, oh, you assumed this. Oh, because she said this to you, just assumed it was true. Um, and especially if you're trying to con somebody else, you're focusing so much on that. You may not realize that they're turning their, turning it around on you. So it's all psychological stuff, but I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Deception is endlessly fascinating to me. And I'm really not a very deceptive guy in my life. I have a, a pretty boring, well, I'm not boring, but I'm a pretty straight up, straight laced guy. But I'm always, always uh, so fascinated by how people are able to not only be deceptive with others, but be deceptive with themselves. Um, people are really good at deceiving themselves all the time. Yeah. Um, so it, the, the, there's so much grist there. There's so much for me to talk about in that area. By no means am I done. Well, no, clearly. Before we get to rapid fire questions and start to wrap the show, I want to ask you this, and I ask this of all my authors, and for, for a New York Times bestselling author as yourself, Edgar Award winning and so forth, you and, and and this kind of track record, I mean, you don't get into you don't get invited to the James Patterson Club if you're an idiot. What is your single, and you've kind of referred to it loosely throughout the show, but what is your best single piece of advice, especially to emerging writers? My best advice is to write as much as you can and read good literature What what in, in the genre you want to write. Just keep reading and soak in the good stuff. It, it's, it's, a, it's a process that's very interesting that won't have a beginning, middle, and end. It will just sort of happen. Just read something that's really good. And then, you know, you'll start maybe even ask yourself, now, how, look how they did that. Look how they drew me in with the character, not with something long-winded, but with this. Or look at the devices that they used. If you just keep reading, it's going to sort of happen. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know how to write. I didn't have any writing courses in my background. I just knew what was good literature, and I knew how to recognize when my own stuff wasn't good enough yet. Yeah. So I just kept redoing it. And it's just a muscle. You know, you lift weights, you get bigger muscles. You write more, you get better writing muscles. And, you know, people, the biggest obstacle, David, is right here between your ears. Yeah. That is the biggest obstacle. Oh, it's not going to be good. I'm going to be embarrassed. You know what? Just write. And if it's not good, fix it. 
or toss it and do better next time. But you're, you know, if you just let yourself be paralyzed by the fear that it won't be good, you'll never get that first draft that no one's going to read. Let them read the 10th draft, but it all starts with the first draft. So spit it out, reach in and spit it out, write as much as you can. My best ideas will often come while I'm being inspired by someone else's art. It might be listening to a song. It might be reading. And, and I'll say I was reading this really good novel and it gave me this idea. And people think that means that literally I'm taking the idea from the other book. That's not what happened. Right. It's just, they did something really cool. And I felt like a rush and I'm like, Hey, wait, I could do something really cool in this book. It's a, isn't that weird how that happens? It happens to me all. It's how I find most of my inspiration. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing that happens. And if you're awake, what I call awake and paying attention, those are morsels from the subconscious, the higher, your higher self, that if you'll yeah. tap into that and listen, you're, you're going to get a key to your success. So something you wrote triggered something in my mind to go, oh, let me look at it this way. And so it allows me this paradigm shift and only makes me better. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Wow, that's really, that's, that's a great, I, that's, I'm very happy to hear that. That yeah. makes me feel very good that you said that. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, it is time. Rapid fire questions is just a silly little thing okay. that we have fun with. You're not going to get hurt. If you've, had, <laughs> if you've heard the show before, you know how we do this. That's what I do. What is on your TBR stack that you are currently reading and you're like, wow. I just started reading The It Girl by Ruth Ware. And so she's she's a bestseller. So I'm not I'm not breaking any new ground there. But everything she does, the way she presents information, even a, a sentence that would seem boring, she writes it in such a, a vivid way. She brings things to life in a way that makes me insanely jealous. Ruth yeah. Ware is amazing. All right. Uh, you are road tripping. All right. So when you're road tripping or writing, what artist or genre of music do you like to listen to? Usually rap, which surprises people. I, I like I like uh, I like Eminem. I like Rage Against the Machine. I like uh, A Tribe Called Quest. Um, yeah. When I'm all by myself, I'll usually something thrashy with some thrash guitar, maybe thrown in there too. some Foo Fighters. <laughs> I don't know why you, that, you thought it was Yo-Yo Ma or something. I, you know, I was going to go with uh, uh, one of my favorites, Dave Brubeck Quartet for classical jazz, or, you know, you were going to pull some kind of a, you know, country reference or something. I don't no. know why, but just uh, that's, I love it. Okay. <laughs> but you know what? It's funny. Like my, my kids are listening to like Taylor Swift and I'll like, yeah, I like Taylor Swift. She's great. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I used to be much more snobby about my music. Now anything, you know, my, yeah. the hot hits that my kids have listened to. Uh, great. I love them. They're great. I can see you right now with a lighter out in a Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not anytime soon, but. All right. Number three, finish this sentence for me. On my next completely free weekend, all I want to do is blank. Binge a show on uh, a streaming series. I okay. never get to do that. And I love that. Fourth and final. What's the one writing experience you hope to have before handing in your keyboard? Uh, I'd like to do a screenplay that has supernatural elements. Mm. I've never done supernatural. Patterson and I have talked about doing it. If, if, if I wanted to, he'd probably think up something for me. But because uh, he can he can do that in like a day and a half. He can come up with some idea. He's crazy. He's He's crazy, but yeah, supernatural, uh, you know, sixth sense, you know, Shyamalan yep. sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I love Shyamalan. I do too. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, inside scoop. One day I want to meet James Patterson because I just think he's, 
he's a genius of beyond measure. So, well, he um, he would certainly not present himself to you that way. He'd be wearing a baseball cap. He'd look like he just w- was fishing or something. Yeah, and he'll well, he'll show up and he'll chat with you, and he's just he's he's, he's just the most down to earth guy you'll ever meet. I love that. Folks, listen, if you want to learn more about my new friend, David Ellis, go to davidellis.com and follow him on Twitter at David Ellis Books. Dude, this was amazingly good. Well, you're the best, David, and uh, you're a true pro. And, you know, um, I'll be knocking on your door anytime you'll have me. This was well, great. Well, I'll have you back. And folks, again, the book is Look Closer. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great. It's, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. A lot of things have to come together uh, and, and hard work. Hard work and luck. But also you have such a great, solid attitude about it. And what you're doing is you're living your passion. And I believe personally, as long as you're living your passion, your place of intention is clear. You're not hurting anyone. You're only trying to be better. You can't lose, right? I agree. And and I don't, it doesn't feel like work. It's my vacation every day. When I spend those few hours writing every day before I become a judge, (laughs) uh, before my kids are awake and my wife is awake, uh, that's my vacation. I have vacation every morning. Yeah. Well, once again, David, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, David. Your front row seat to the best thrillers. The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.